you say, thanks be to God. Okay, it is a, a good Presbyterian tradition that uh, we must carry on. You know, I'm not one for tradition, so when I uh, affirm this, it must be something that I can do. Let's pray together. Father, please help us now as we hear you speak from your word. Please teach us as only you can. Please stir our hearts to see and obey. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, can I ask you, when was the last time someone let you down? When was the last time someone let you down? Now, for many of us, it could be not too long ago, someone who didn't turn up as promised, someone who couldn't help out as promised, uh, it could be a friend, family member, a, a co-worker or a boss who, who didn't say or didn't do something or made some decision or other that let you down. Now, in my recent experience, one of the great letting downs uh, I encountered was uh, from my housing agent because she did not do her due diligence and uh, got me a tenant that was actually bankrupt to the tune of $7 million and halfway through, couldn't pay his rent and all sorts of problems came out, right? Even got loan shark problems. So she really let me down. Now I think what happens for many of us as we are consistently experiencing people letting us down, we transfer the expectation, you know, consciously or, or unconsciously, we transfer that into the spiritual arena. Because we so regularly face the experience of people letting us down, many of us have come to expect that maybe God will also let us down. Now, I need to be clear here. There are some of us who not only expect the possibility that God may let us down, but there are some of us here who, if we are honest, we will say, no, no. I, I not only expect, in fact, I have experienced God has let me down. God has let me down. I have experienced it. And most, if not all of the time, it has to do with God not letting me get the job that I, 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 I prayed for, I so wanted. Or God not uh, finding me, giving me a, a marriage partner. I'm, I'm still alone after all these years. I can't find someone to marry. Or God didn't heal me. I prayed so much, I, I, I claimed it in faith, but God didn't heal me or God didn't heal my loved one and the person died. God has let me down. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not at all minimizing any of these experiences. I just need to be clear with you that all these things that I've said is not what our passage is dealing with. This passage before us has to do with what God has promised. It has to do with what God has promised and whether He will let us down with regards to what He has promised. Because as important as a good job, getting married and being healthy are, these are not things that God has promised. It's our right, it's, it's what we, we must have and will have. It is not something that God 
has promised. So what we are dealing here in this passage is, will God let me down with what he has promised? Will he really be able to make good on his word? And what is it that he has promised? Well, if you have your Bibles open, please turn back to chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. I I bring us to this passage because uh, it is important and it is uh, right at the heart of what Hebrews is all about. So if you are the person who likes to highlight or underline, do that to chapter 3, verse 14. For it says, We have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in His benefits. We have come to share in all the good things He has won. If, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. This is the promise. If you hold on to Christ, if you hold on to the gospel firmly, not just for a while, not just for 10 years, but firmly to the end, you will have come to share in Christ. You will have come to be truly His people. You have come to experience all of His benefits and good things. If we hold on to the end. That's the promise. It is a promise of life, of salvation, of sins forgiven. And so the question is, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? How can I have the assurance that what God has promised, He will deliver? How can I have the confidence that He will not let me down? Our passage gives us four answers. You can find them in your bulletin, in the outline. The passage tells us reality has come. Uh, The second one says God's will be done, but uh, after thinking about it, it's more properly God's will is done. So change it if you like. God's will is done. He has sat down (coughs) and sins are forgiven. So the first one. Reality has come. Verses 1 to 4. Now before we (coughs) read these verses, we need to uh, know that this passage is the climax. It is the climax of an argument that the author began all the way back in chapter 4, verse 14. He has been arguing that Jesus is the better priest who offers a better sacrifice and who establishes the better covenant. So all these three themes of priesthood, sacrifice and covenant are all intertwined here as the author makes uh, the climax to his argument. Now it is helpful also to remind ourselves of the original audience the writer was addressing. He was writing to Jewish Christians who, because of the the cost of identifying with Christ in a a society that was anti-Christian, they were tempted to go back to the the safe haven of Judaism, to go back to the, the safety of the Old Testament religion because that was a legal religion. Whereas to be Christian was to invite Persecution to invite mockery and discrimination. They wanted to return to the safety of Judaism. So that is why our writer has been speaking 
using the Old Testament categories of, of priesthood, sacrifice and covenant. And again and again he has made the point that with the coming of Jesus Christ, Judaism is rendered obsolete. So there's no going back. And now he says in verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Now, did you catch that? What does he say is a shadow? He says, the law, referring to the whole Mosaic law, the whole law is the shadow. He doesn't just say the priesthood or the sacrifices. He says the law is the shadow. It was always meant to point ahead to the reality, the, the substance that was coming. Yes, to be sure, the aspect of the law that our writer refers to is the specific area of the sacrifices. So consider the similar language that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, I have it on the slide for you. Paul says in verse 16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So the, the food laws, the Sabbath laws, the, the festivals, the, all these Old Testament regulations, they are a shadow. The reality is found in Christ. Why go back to the shadow when the substance and reality has come? It's the implicit question. And yet what is the sad and tragic truth is that there are, even today, so-called Christian teachers who are teaching and urging Christians that they need to return to the law. That as God's people, they must once again take up the fruit laws. They must once again uh, obey the Sabbath as the Old Testament people have done. But that's going back to the shadows when reality has come. Now don't hear me as saying, that the law, the Old Testament is now irrelevant, you know, invalid for the Christian. No, no. The law is God-given. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit and it is valid and it is accurate as a shadow. As a shadow that is pointing forward, giving us some idea of the reality that is to come, that has now come in Christ. And so for this reason, the author says, it can never, by those Old Testament sacrifices repeated year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Because it's only a shadow. You put shadow upon shadow upon shadow upon shadow upon shadow and what you get is still a shadow. There's no substance. It cannot make perfect those who draw near to worship. Now in the book of Hebrews, think of uh, perfect and perfection as the, 
I think it's the easiest way to explain it. It is the, the ability to get the job done. Okay, so don't think of perfection as you know having no flaws. This is you know um, there's no dents or anything. Think of perfection as the ability to get the job done. So these Old Testament sacrifices cannot get the job done. It cannot bring people, give them access into the presence of God. And instead, verse three tells us these sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. These sacrifices could not remove sin. It only showed the people the seriousness of sin, that blood had to be shed, that the only way out was for a substitute to take the blame for them. It was, in other words, only a shadow, pointing ahead to the reality. So that's the first answer uh, our passage gives us, how can we be sure God will not let us down? You know, because we have moved from shadow to reality, and reality has come. The second answer contained in this passage is that now in Christ, now in Christ, God's will is done. God's will is done. Verses 5 to 10. The author now seeks to persuade his uh, readers from the Old Testament itself. And he quotes Psalm 40. Psalm 40 that was written about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus and uh, written by David, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The writer shows us that these words that were written by King David actually find fulfillment on the lips of Jesus himself, of David's greatest son. And the picture is of the son, Jesus the son, just before he comes into earth as a man, as he is standing on the edge of heaven, he is having this conversation, he is speaking to God the Father. Look at with me to verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Jesus says, saying to the Father, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in a scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So, uh, the writer quotes Psalm 40, puts it on the lips of Jesus. Now, if you uh, have any questions as to why the way the Hebrew writer quotes it, it's a bit different from our responsive reading when uh, Tsen Yang picked it for us. Uh, we have no time to talk about this now. Talk to me later if you really have that question. So, he quotes Psalm 40 and he begins to explain it in verses 8 to 10. Verse 8. First, he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, you did not desire nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So you must Imagine 
as we are reading this, the son, as he is speaking to the father prior to his incarnation, as he stands on the edge of heaven, just before he takes on human form, as just before he takes on a human body, he is talking to the father. And as father and son are in heaven, year after year, they had witnessed the sacrifice, the offering again and again of animals, burn offerings, sin offerings. Yes, all of it was done according to the law that God himself gave. But up there in heaven, the son knows God was never ultimately pleased with them. Because it was never his intention that animals, animals who, who were sacrificed, as it were, quite apart from their will. There was no animal that said, you know, I'm spotless, I want to be sacrificed. You know, all animals were, were sacrificed against their will. They, they had no desire to be sacrificed. They were just let there and their throats were cut, their blood was spilled against their will. It was never God's intention that such offerings could deal with the problem of sin. And instead, the Son up there in heaven says to the Father, a body, a body you have prepared for me. Here I am. I have come to do your will. In other words, Jesus comes and he, he not only comes, but he willingly comes. He eagerly comes to sacrifice, to give the sacrifice that would please God. That of the body that was prepared for him. He was given a body so that he could offer that body as a sacrifice so that God would get what he is truly pleased with and what he truly desires. Jesus comes with an obedience that is single-minded and eager to do God's will. Here I am. I have come to do your will. Then our writer tells us, he sets aside the first to establish the second. Meaning that Jesus has set aside the first, the, the first, the, the, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings. He has set aside the Old Testament sacrifices in order that he might establish the will of God. The will of God that is the sacrifice of an altogether more precious, more valuable body, that of the eternal Son of God. Because that is the only sacrifice that could deal with the problem of sin. And so verse 10 tells us, And by that will, we have been made holy to the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We can be certain that God will not let us down because His will, His will has been done. The third answer from our passage in verses 11 to 14 makes the point that He has set down, that our better priest has sat down. Notice as we read uh, verses 11 to 14, the contrast that the writer makes between the Old Testament priest and our better priest. Verse 11. 
<coughs> day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. And by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Did you notice the contrast? Under the old covenant, there were many priests offering many sacrifices, day after day, again and again, offering the same sacrifices, day after day, again and again, the same sacrifices. It is an emphasis on the futility of the whole thing. Day after day, again and again, the same sacrifices is futile. And the end of verse 12 tells us, it can never take away sins. But in contrast, the one sacrifice by the one priest, done for the one time, once for all, has tremendously put away, removed, dealt with, the problem of sin. It works. It got the job done. And we know he got the job done because after he offered that one sacrifice, he sat down. He sat down. That is the main contrast the writer is making. Because you look at verse 11, the Old Testament priest, day after day, every priest Stands. They need to stand because the job is not done. But the posture of our great high priest is that he is sitting down. It shows that his sacrifice is completely effective and does not ever need to be repeated. And when you think of Jesus, when you <clears throat> picture him, what is he doing in your mind as you picture him? But the Hebrew writer tells us he is sitting down and waiting. As it were, he's, uh, you know, he's crossed his legs, he's folded his arms, he's, he's waiting because the job is done. And he is, he's waiting, he's not working because the work is done and now he simply waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. This is good news for those who trust him. But bad news for those who do not. Those who do not, will not trust him, cannot escape, cannot run away from the sun. The day will come when they will be subjected to him and made his footstool. Now this, this brings me comfort. Do you know that 200 to 300 of our Christian brothers and sisters are killed for their faith 
yearly or monthly, two to three hundred are killed daily because of no other fact that they are Christian. All around the world, two to three hundred of our brothers and sisters are killed. They are persecuted to death by the enemies of Christ. But there's no escape. There is no running away for these enemies because the day will come. The job is done. Jesus is simply waiting for them to be put under his feet. It's bad news for his enemies, but good news for us because those who have come to trust in him will be, verse 14, made perfect, made holy. Friends, these are two ways that the writer is using to describe the one great reality that Jesus has accomplished for us. We now have access. Access is no longer denied. We now can enter in. We now have that right relationship with God. He sat down. Job done. Before I lose my voice, <coughs> let's look at the fourth and final answer. How can I know that God will not let me down? Because sins are forgiven. Sins are forgiven. Verse 15 to 18. Now notice as we read this, who is the one making this assertion? This is something that the Holy Spirit is declaring now. Not just in the past. The Holy Spirit is saying this now. It was now, it was immediate to the original hearers. It is immediate and now for us as we hear this. The Holy Spirit is saying this now to us. You get it? The words of Jeremiah written 600 years before Christ. The Holy Spirit is saying this now to us. Let's look at verse 15 to 18. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So two blessings of the new covenant are highlighted. Remember, the, the new covenant is ratified, it is established, it is put into effect by blood. And it is the blood of the eternal Son of God that has established and put into effect this new covenant such that we now enjoy its blessings. The first blessing is that God will write His law in our hearts and in our minds. The law will no longer be something external, written on tablets of stone, on scrolls. It is now internalized. God writes it on our hearts and minds. The point is, God is saying through this that He is enabling. Essentially, God will enable us to keep and obey the law. God Himself 
will empower and bring about and enable the obedience that comes from the heart. Now, of course, it is not talking about instantaneous transformation, that a person who becomes a Christian, receives the Holy Spirit, you know, overnight becomes completely obedient in completely every area. No, no, it is a process that God has begun and will complete. Now, what is meant by God writing His law in our hearts is made clear by uh, the parallel passage in Ezekiel. You know, remember the church came from last year. You know, let's make good memories together. Uh, Ezekiel makes clear that what God is speaking about is the giving of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. The same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus on earth. That gave the power that enabled Jesus to give that single-minded, eager obedience to do the will of God. That same Holy Spirit is what is now empowering us. It's not some different. Jesus doesn't have like more, you know. He doesn't have like the limited edition of the Holy Spirit and, and we have some third, second, you know. We are given that same Spirit. So the question is, do you believe this? <laughs> do you believe this? Is it not the case that so many Christians struggle and are so easily defeated because they fail to grasp the implications of this truth? Could it be that so many Christians are unnecessarily enslaved to the things of the world because they have not properly grappled with this promise of the new covenant of what God is now and has done in the giving of His Spirit in us? You see, friends, it is a lie. It is a lie that the devil wants us to believe to believe that life will never change, that the, the, the dream of spiritual growth is just that, a dream, an elusive dream, that what lies ahead in the future will simply be a repetition of past failures and mistakes. It is a lie. Because what has the new covenant brought about God writing His law, God enabling His people, God giving us the power and the ability to give single-minded, eager obedience to His will. Not perfect. But, but have you grappled with this truth that it is not your willpower, it is not just up to you, it is God in you enabling you. Now, friends, this is not, you know, the power of positive thinking. You know, we're not talking here about believing something in order to make it true. You know, just, okay, just, just have these positive thoughts, positive thoughts, and then, you know, it will happen. We're not talking about that. What the Hebrew writer has brought to our attention is that, that this promise, this blessing of the new covenant is now put into effect. It is now established because blood has been shed. 
because of the blood of the eternal Son of God that has been shed, this new covenant is established, it is ratified, it is enforced because His blood has been shed. This holding on to what God now gives us of His Spirit, enabling us to believe, is not positive thinking. It is blood-bought, grace-grounded, what God has accomplished in Christ through His death. Oh, we need to hold this more clearly. Consider these implications, not just think we are all alone in this fight and struggle. The second blessing. The second blessing, the Holy Spirit testifies that with regards to our sins and lawless deeds, God will remember them no more. Because the death of Christ has fully and completely dealt with the problem of sin, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness for sins and there is a forgiveness that is so certain, so definite, that God can speak of it as, Huh? What? When? No, I don't remember. <laughs> you know, whatever that you have done in the past, whatever you are now doing in the present, whatever you might commit in the future, if you are holding on to Christ, God speaks of it as if it doesn't happen. He will not hold it against us to condemn us. God remembers it no more. All of our gossiping, all of our lustful thoughts, all of our greed, all of our hate, all of our pride, God will not use any of it as the basis of our condemnation. It is all forgotten. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. A forgiveness that is full and free and certain has been accomplished for us. Praise God. It is, it is a people who are so redeemed, who so understand this that when we come together like this, when we sing, oh, the singing must be from the heart, the singing must, must be even better than the singing that happens at Old Trafford and you know, Anfield, where all their singing is because a goal has been scored, but we are singing because our sins have been forgiven. Oh, friends, praise God that this is true. So four answers our passage has given us why God will not let us down. Because the reality has come, because God's will is done, because He has sat down, and sins are forgiven. Now Jesus, Jesus who is, who is a much better teacher, he can summarize all that the Hebrew writer is saying in this uh, whole passage, all that I've been trying to say. Jesus can summarize it in one word. <laughs> he's a better teacher, he's the best teacher, isn't it? One word. He can get across, you know, in what 18 verses the, the, the writer is trying to say, what I've been trying to say for the uh, 36 minutes. One word. It is a word that is found in John chapter 19. 
that Jesus, as he is hanging there on the cross, says in one word, in the original, in English it's three words, but in the Greek it's one word. Finished. Finished. It is finished. The work is done. The work is accomplished. Nothing you can do or, or, or not do can change that fact. So hold on to him. Don't trust in your goodness or morality or how active you are in church. Don't put your confidence in any of that. Put your confidence in the one who has done the work. That it is finished. Hang on to him. And may God help us to do that. Amen.